1: Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes when things are not changing, we're following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refily Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Sadia and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. I'm Asad Bhatt.
2: And I'm Sadia Khan.
0: Sadia, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, Asad. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, things are good. I'm trying to think of what the latest is. Oh, you know, one thing I wanted to note, because a lot of listeners uh, uh, emailed us uh Uh, about one of our recent episodes yes that is my daughter that you can hear uh kind of cooing in the background because sometimes when we're recording this podcast i'm wearing her she's you know a couple months old and i had a couple listeners that that uh that reached out and were like is that a baby (laughs) in the background (laughs) and yes so yeah sometimes you'll hear a dog bark sometimes you'll hear a baby cooing and that's just all part of the invisible hate Hate
2: yeah, we have another co-host in Isha
0: now. Yes, Isha. Yeah, she's she loves these hate crime stories. She's gonna grow up to be a, a true crime enthusiast for sure. Sadie, what's what's the latest with you?
2: said I just came back from Chicago. As you know, I was in Chicago for almost ten days. So we were supposed to be there for eight, and then we extended our trip, which was magical i got to spend time with my siblings and pretty much caught up on all the family drama extended family drama because my sister always has stories that i don't know or am, an, <laughs> am i not aware of yeah sure. so that was a lot of fun but you know what i am happy to be back home
0: too yeah, there's nothing like like being at home
2: yeah there's this like you know threshold of how long you want to stay outside the house and then once totally. you're back you feel relaxed and happy.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. When, when we were in Boston, it was like a 12-day trip, and I think at day nine, I was like, I'm I'm ready to be home. <laughs> You're
2: ready to be home, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I want to be back in my home bed.
2: Oh, by the way, so you and Wakas, my husband, was supposed to meet.
0: Oh, yeah, he ditched me. And
2: then something happened, right? And I <laughs> was so bummed, and I kept telling him, why didn't you? Why didn't you? And he was like... Um, uh, you're extra excited
0: about this. I was
2: like, <laughs> "Yeah, I just wanted you to meet Assad because I think you guys have a lot in common." So
0: we were supposed to meet at a uh, human bean uh, coffee shop, which is a brand of coffee shop out here on the West Coast, and I think that he either had never heard of it or didn't know about it, and just tossed it into his GPS. And went to one that was like, you know, 15 miles away oh. as opposed to the one that, you know, where I was I was at. He was like, I'm here. And I was looking all around. It's was like, where is he? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and then he had to go off to a meeting. So we ended up not being able to meet. And then, yeah, all, all sorts of kind of craziness um, um, ensued. So, yeah, we did not get to have our meet cute. But uh, one day in the future, we will. Yeah,
2: hopefully, hopefully. So I said, are you ready for today's case?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Our story today takes us to Baton Rouge, Louisiana in October of 1992. It's a quiet fall night in the rural suburb of Central. 16-year-old Japanese exchange student Yoshihiro Hatori lays on his back in the carport of 10311 East Brookside. Blood is seeping through his ruffled white shirt and tuxed jacket with a hole in his chest where the bullet struck him just moments earlier. The doors and windows of the house have been slammed shut, the shooter and his family leaving Yoshihiro lying fatally injured just outside the door. We're here for the party, he had happily explained, walking towards the home. Freeze, the man had yelled, gun in hand. But Yoshi hadn't understood. And before he knew what was happening, the man had raised the gun to shoulder level and pulled the trigger. 16-year-old Webb Haymaker hovers over Yoshi, applying pressure to the wound, as Yoshi cries out in pain. Moments later, he's loaded into an ambulance and driven to the hospital, but Yoshi never makes it there. While en route, he stops breathing, and is declared dead. This is Invisible Hate. So, Sabia, today's story actually comes from one of my favorite songs. The song is called Crackdown. It's by a group called Grant Lee Buffalo. I'm guessing you've never heard of them. I haven't. They are kind of big in the 1990s. And this song came out in 1996. And I've probably heard this song like 500 times, I'm guessing, over the years. And, you know, recently I was listening to it and listening to the lyrics you know again and there was a a lyric that actually alludes to this event and i'm going to read the lyrics for you it says Mm. gunned down in the drive a foreign exchange student from japan whose fate was shortchanged you saw it all when it made the national news how the isolated incident occurred in baton rouge and in the heat of crackdown all is silent and so the song, Sally, is really about how fear and hysteria makes you do irrational things, and obviously we'll get to that in a little bit. And so, you know, I didn't know too much about this story, and so, you know, when I was recently re-listening to the song and found out what it was actually referencing, I wanted to share it with our listeners. Hmm. So let's go back to the beginning. It's around seven forty-five PM on October seventeenth, nineteen ninety-two. 16-year-old Japanese exchange student Yoshihiro Hattori and his American host brother, Webb Haymaker, drive through the streets of the rural Louisiana suburb of Central, searching for a Halloween party being held for exchange students in the area. Yoshihiro, also known as Yoshi, has been in the U.S. for two and a half months and has already settled in, adapting quickly to his new environment. He arrived from Nagoya, Japan in August, and has since been living with Richard, Holly, and Webb Haymaker in a nice upper-middle-class neighborhood in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Holly Haymaker is a 47-year-old doctor and reproductive rights activist who teaches family medicine at the Louisiana State University Medical School. Her husband, 52-year-old Richard Haymaker, is a physics professor at the university. They have one son named Webb, whom Yoshi made quick friends upon his arrival. After attending a blues festival with Webb that September, where they met several other kids their age, Yoshi was put in touch with another Japanese exchange student who invited both him and Webb to a Halloween party for exchange students on that Saturday night in October. That night, Mr. Haymaker agrees to let Webb take the family car to drive both Yoshi and himself to the home of Frank and Connie Piter in Central, where the party is being held. He gives the boys directions to the home, remember, this is before GPS, at 10131 East Brookside. But despite this, they find themselves lost after taking several wrong turns. After a lot of confusion, the boys finally arrive on the street, East Brookside, and proceed slowly down the street looking for the Peter House. And so, you know, they find the third house on the right has several Halloween decorations, has three cars in the driveway, and bears an address that's very similar to the one that they'd been looking for, and that was 10311 East Brookside. So, believing that they found the correct house finally, they parked the car and the two boys approached the home.
2: But they are at the wrong home, right?
0: Yeah. So, unfortunately, they're at the wrong house, five doors down where they should have been because, you know, the numbers were just a little bit confusing. Um, but they didn't realize this at the time. Yoshi, having recently been obsessed with John Travolta, is dressed as him in Saturday Night Fever. He's always sporting a ruffled white shirt, black pants, and a white tuxedo jacket. Webb, on the other hand, is dressed as an accident victim, wearing a neck brace and several additional bandages. At around 8.15, the boys reach the front door and ring the doorbell, and at first there's no answer. Inside, the peers, Rodney and Bonnie and their three children, are all sitting down for dinner. Rodney sends his stepson to answer the carport door, But not wanting her son to answer the door after dark, Bonnie goes to answer the door herself. Upon hearing someone move the blinds to the left by the carport door, Yoshi and Webb begin to move towards the side entrance. You know, they think they're at their party, right? So they're like, want to get in. Turning on the porch light, Bonnie opens the carport door. She first spots Webb standing in the carport in his bandages, and then she spots Yoshi, and then this is what she says in an interview afterwards. And all
1: of a sudden, a second person come, came from around the corner real fast. And I'd say within a, a second or two, something just told me this isn't right.
0: Upon seeing Yoshi come around the corner, Bonnie frantically slams the door shut, locking it behind her. And inside, she yells to her husband to get the gun.
2: Wait, what What was so scary about these two boys and Yoshi in particular that Bonnie believes that their presence warrants a gun? Like, what the hell?
0: Yeah, it's really confusing. I, I don't know what the right answer is. It's not like there was some sort of, you know, monster, you know, right outside. It's just two confused teenage boys. Right. But something about Yoshi and his sudden appearance seems to bother Bonnie. And it's clear to Rodney that something has terrified his wife. So without questioning why, Rodney immediately runs up to the master bedroom and retrieves a 44 Magnum Smith & Wesson revolver equipped with a scope that he keeps loaded in a suitcase on the top shelf in his closet. Outside, Yoshi and Webb begin walking down the driveway away from the home, confused. But before they can get very far, the carport door opens up again. And this time, it's Rodney and he's holding a gun. But Yoshi doesn't have his contacts in and can't see the gun in Rodney's hand. And before Webb can stop him, he's walking towards Rodney, smiling and boisterously exclaiming, we're here for the party.
2: So they were walking away from the house. But then he turns around. Yoshi turns around thinking that this may actually be the house.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the door opened. And so, yeah, in, again, in their mind, they're they're at a party. And they're, they're trying to get inside, and like, yeah, when the carport door opens up, yeah, you think, okay, they're letting us in, right? Hmm. So Rodney immediately shouts for Yoshi to freeze, but it is clear that he doesn't understand what this means and continues to move towards the house, telling the man that he's here for the party. Yoshi reaches the rearview mirror of the family's Toyota station wagon, parked in the right side of the double carport. And Rodney raises the revolver to shoulder level. The next thing Yoshi knows, he's been shot in the chest, the bullet passing through his left chest near the heart, ripping through his left lung, and knocking him onto his back, his head a foot from the carport door. And then Rodney slams the door shut, locking it behind him, and leaving Yoshi laying on the floor of the family's carport, bleeding profusely. Webb immediately runs to the house next door. And screams for the residents inside to call 911. Stan Lucky answers his door, reassuring Webb that his wife has called 911. He then accompanies Webb back to the scene of the crime, where the two attempt to provide medical assistance to Yoshi. And so Webb actually recalls what happened at this moment in an interview with the Justice Files. Here it is. Well, he was moaning and crying while I said. Can you speak and he said yes. But, well, but he was in pain, obviously. A few minutes later So Mr. Lucky, the neighbor, elevates Yoshi's feet and instructs Webb to apply pressure to the chest wound. The two continue to do so until personnel from Central Volunteer Fire Department arrive, administering treatment, while the sheriff deputies secure the scene. EMS technicians arrive at 8:39 loading Yoshi into the ambulance to be taken to the hospital but just 9 minutes later while he's on the way to the hospital Yoshi stops breathing.
2: I so said this is such an incredibly tragic story and as I was reading through this yesterday I was so emotional again the kid is only 16 years old and I cannot, cannot imagine what his parents must be going through after they found out and being so far away from their kid in the first place. And Yoshi was just 16-year-old, two and a half months into his exchange program, right? He was so excited for his year in America. And then this happens.
0: Sally, it's crazy because... How many times have you and I, you know, separately, obviously, gone to people's houses that we don't know where they live and we we go to the door and knock on the door, right? Like, right. So, you know, especially in a, in a pre-GPS era, you could knock on someone's door. It happened all the time, you know, and still happens to me, you know, all the time. Or we've talked about a lot of stories like this where this happens a lot and it just it it makes me so furious how quickly things escalate
2: you're right I and let me tell you after having read so many of these stories i am almost scared to do that now i try not to even if i'm lost to drive into somebody's driveway or even ask for help because you don't know who is on the other side of the door and what may
0: happen right 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 i think that's exactly right So, you know, Sabe, as you were saying, yes, he was really excited about his year um, in America. He was looking forward to the exchange program for quite some time. He was the second of three children and grew up in a well-educated middle-class family in Nagoya, Japan. His father was an engineer with an auto parts manufacturer, and his mother was a housewife. From a young age, Yoshi's life had been filled with images of American culture, like, you know, movies, TV shows, rock music. And he was really fascinated by it all. Yoshi wanted to be a cultural bridge between the American people and the Japanese. And he hoped that one day America might become his second home. This
2: breaks my heart, I said. This really, really does.
0: A typical story, right? He studied English in school, but had a somewhat limited knowledge uh, of the language and looked forward to improving his English um, throughout a year of, you know, studying abroad here in the United States for a year and attending an American school. So upon his arrival in Baton Rouge, Yoshi began attending McKinley High, joining Webb as part of the 12th grade class. He immediately made a positive impression on classmates and was well-liked by many students, charming them with his smile and his stories of life back home in Japan. And, you know, according to a BBC News interview with his host mom, Holly, she said that the kids loved him and that he was such a free spirit and just a total extrovert. What he lacked in English-speaking ability, he made up for in expression through playful movement. He loved to dance, dancing through the halls of McKinley High and in the spacious kitchen of his American host home. According to that same interview, Yoshi's host dad Richard said he was just a really, really extraordinary guy. He was life. He moved through space like a dancer. Back in Japan, Yoshi had played rugby, but in the U.S., He decided to sign up for a local jazz dance class and rode his bike to class very often. So, you know, Sadia, he was just an incredibly big-hearted, generous kid cooking dinner for the family, calling Richard and Holly, mom and dad, and cleaning a tree out for their swimming pool after Hurricane Andrew. Just like a really cool kid.
2: I said, he sounds like such a cool kid, as you said. Like, you know, just living life, enjoying life, and then... This tragic, tragic incident happens that basically cuts his life short. His parents must have been absolutely devastated to find out what had happened to their incredible, amazing son, right?
0: Yeah, his parents were absolutely crushed. In fact, the entire country of Japan was devastated by the news. So, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll be discussing the Japanese response to the tragedy of Yoshi's death. Welcome back to Invisible Hate.
2: So I said, what was the reaction of not just his parents, but Japan in general?
0: Yeah, so Yoshi's death shocked many in Japan and attracted widespread Japanese media coverage within the country, in which gun laws are much stricter than in the U.S. According to the Washington Post, uh, for Japan, Yoshi's death has become a symbol of all that has gone wrong with America, inciting bitter criticism towards a country that Japan has long looked to as a primary ally and mentor.
2: I'm not surprised Asad. it
0: Yeah, totally. You know, and so, you know, a lot of the country citizens were unhappy. They were there was just kind of astonishment, shock and anger. And of course, you know, nobody was more devastated than Yoshi's parents, Masaki and Maiko Hatori. Just seven days after their son's death, the Hatoris began a petition drive calling on American politicians to reassess the easy availability of guns, and end the yearly devastation caused by these weapons of destruction by banning handguns. 1.7 million Japanese citizens signed the petition. Remember, this is like pre-internet days. (laughs) And
2: this is 1992, you're right.
0: Yeah, it's really early on, right? And so when we say they signed, they're signing these petitions. The haymakers too gathered signatures in the United States with Richard Haymaker collecting about 150,000 signatures, all submitted by mail. According to the New York Times, the Hattori's first presented their petition to the U.S. ambassador in December of 1992, and then in November of 1993, both the Hattori's and the Haymakers met with President Bill Clinton to present him with the petition and asked that he take action to improve American gun laws. And here is a statement that Mrs. Hattori said regarding the presentation of this petition.
1: Today. To Washington D.C., we bring 1.7 million signatures collected in Japan. We started the petition petition because we love America just as Yosh did. The Japanese people signed the petition in the hope that the United States will become a safer country.
0: So Yoshi's mom told Clinton all about her son showing him pictures of Yoshi and placing a no handgun sticker on his jacket. The president then apologized to both parents for what had happened to their son. And while the Hattori's petition may not have had any direct or immediate political impact, their campaign ultimately played a large role in helping build momentum for the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, signed into law in November of 1993.
2: So what is the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act?
0: Yeah, it's also known as the Brady Bill, and it mandated background checks for all individuals buying firearms and instituted a five-day waiting period on purchases. It was kind of this important first step in the introduction of background checks. Hmm. And you know, Sadia, in 1993, the U.S. ambassador to Japan, Walter Mondale, traveled to Nagoya to give the Hatori's a copy of the law and tell them that they had a quote very definite impact on the passage of the Brady Bill. Oh my
2: god, I As- said this must have been a powerful moment for the parents, right? To know that despite all the hardship, grief and loss, they were making a change in the world, to know that their son had not died in vain, right?
0: Yeah, you know, Sadia, it got me thinking about all these mass shootings that have happened over the years, right? And like how little political action has happened after any of them. And so, yeah, it's pretty remarkable that this kind of international coalition was able to really push through, you know, these laws and, you know, became a foundation of something pretty big in America.
2: Yeah, I said, but here we are in 2023 still still fighting against gun violence, right?
0: Right. No, agreed. It's it's really horrible, you know. And so sadly, this was you know definitely a big thing. But the Hattori's were just getting started. The parents then decided to launch a civil lawsuit against Rodney and Bonnie Piers and their home insurance company. They ultimately walked away with about six hundred and fifty thousand dollars, much of which they used to set up the Yoshi Coalition, a group dedicated to both fighting for and helping fund gun control measures in the United States. The family also used a portion of the money that they won to set up a fund that allows students from the United States to visit Japan, taking part in an exchange program in which students are able to experience a gun-free society. Um, as of April 2023, 20, 30 students have taken part in that program.
2: Wow, I said, that's such an interesting approach to addressing America's gun problem, right? I wish more Americans living in America could come up with more creative ways to address gun violence in yeah, this country. Totally. But getting back to the response to Yoshi's death, I said, beyond the petition itself, were the Haymakers also involved in this ongoing fight against gun violence?
0: Yeah, the Haymakers have remained involved as well. Over the years, they've written op-eds, appeared on three morning network shows to discuss the issue, and donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to gun control organizations. And according to the BBC News, one of these organizations includes the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. That coalition has used their money to establish a working group centered around formulating red flag laws, laws that allow the court-sanctioned removal of guns from individuals judged to be a danger to themselves or others.
2: I said it's incredible how so many people in the United States who've been impacted by gun violence have come together to create awareness and to do activism against gun violence and yet we're still here. That to me is so frustrating because in this case you're seeing both families have contributed significantly to the cause of gun control, right?
0: Yeah, agreed.
2: So, Asad, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll discuss both the perpetrator and the trials that followed his shooting of Yoshi. So, Asad, who is Rodney Pierce, the man that shot Yoshihiro Hatori?
0: Yeah, so Rodney Pierce is a self-described country boy and was born and raised on a farm in Zachary, Louisiana. At the time of the crime, he worked as a butcher and assistant manager at a Winn-Dixie supermarket near his home in Baton Rouge. He was 30 years old at the time, and he lived in a plain brick ranch house on a treeless blue-collar suburban street in the suburb of Central, and he was there with his wife, Bonnie. Bonnie was 28 years old at the time and worked occasionally as a house cleaner, but Rodney seemed to be the primary provider for the family. Both Rodney and Bonnie had been previously married and had three children between them, all of whom lived with them in that house in Central. The children had all been home that night when Rodney shot Yoshi.
2: So what happened to Rodney after he shot Yoshi? Was he taken into custody right away? I hope he was. <laughs>
0: You know, this is where I think you're going to get really frustrated and uh, a lot of our listeners will too. So yeah, so remember, this is October of 1992. Mm -hmm. Rodney has just shot Yoshi and, you know, Yoshi is now lying on the carport bleeding out and the family sits gathered around the kitchen table, locked inside their home, attempting to ignore the commotion occurring just outside the door. When the EMTs and local police soon arrive to help Yoshi, Before long, you know, Rodney is taken into custody at the police station. He admits to having fired the bullet that killed Yoshi. But despite this, he is quickly released without charge with the police assuming that he had been within his rights to shoot a trespasser.
2: Oh, my God.
0: You know, this is textbook. (laughs) I feel like, you know, this is this is what we've seen time and time again. Certain authorities soon reconsider this decision, and they decide to take the case directly to a grand jury who will decide.
2: I said it's bizarre that police were actually so quick to release Rodney, right? He had quite literally just admitted to killing a sixteen year old boy.
0: I mean, you're so right, Sally. It's like it's crazy. It's insane, you know, and again, like I said, we've seen this so so many times. But many police officers and community members seem to view the act as justified under the notion that the protection of one's property from those perceived to be intruders is a legal right. And this is the debate at the heart of the trial of Rodney, which we'll get into. And so in May of 1993, Rodney went to court under charges of manslaughter, potentially facing up to 40 years in prison. Rodney's defense attorney, Louis Unglesby, essentially centered Rodney's defense argument around Louisiana's 1976 Shoot the Burglar Law, formerly known as RS-1420.
2: Okay, what is Shoot the Burglar Law, (laughs) Asad?
0: I knew you were going to ask, so (laughs) we have some research. So basically, you know, as I said, it was enacted in... 1976, and this law essentially makes it legal for any individual to kill an intruder if they, quote, reasonably believe that they are in danger of losing their life or receiving great bodily harm. This law does not require any actual or real danger present. It only hinges on perceived danger.
2: Oh, my God. I said this is so fucked up. Seriously, I mean... (laughs) I don't know where to begin.
0: I know, of course. And so, you know, in other words, despite the fact that Yoshi didn't present a legitimate threat to Rodney's family, if they could prove that they reasonably believed that he did, then Rodney would be in the clear. And so as a result, the lawyer, Unglesby, made it a point to emphasize the fact that Rodney had acted reasonably as a scared homeowner in shooting Yoshi when he had rushed towards him. Wow. So, you know, for Unglesby and Rodney, they basically say that Yoshi's walk was particularly unsettling. And they said that, you know, he'd been waving a camera in one of his hands and Rodney was unable to see what it was. And he thought that that was a gun. And so, you know, it caused a lot of fear and confusion, according to Rodney.
1: To me, it appeared to be a crazy person. This was not, it was out to do harm just the way he moved was uh very strange it wasn't something that you normally see people do and uh
0: i couldn't see any other alternative but to fire to stop this person
2: it was a fucking camera how can you mistake a camera for a gun i said how can you
0: yeah i don't i don't even have a reaction to it sadly. it's just mm. like it's crazy to me Anyways, the East Baton Rouge Parish District Attorney, Doug Moreau, attempted to counter these uh, you know, depictions of Yoshi, claiming that there was, in fact, no menace at all in the actions of either Yoshi or Webb that night, and testimony also revealed that Yoshi often innocently rushed up to people waving his arms, partly out of frustration with the language barrier and partly out of a desire to get their attention and communicate instantly. But, Sadia, it was too late. The damage was already done. And after a jury deliberation of just three hours, Rodney was acquitted of all criminal charges.
2: I said, this is just so insane that Rodney just walked away free of any sort of criminal charge after killing a teenage boy. It's so disheartening, right? His parents must have been devastated. I wish there was something else that... Could happen some kind of accountability.
0: Yeah, hundred percent agree. And you know, yeah, the the parents were very devastated. The Tories were unhappy. They quickly decided to seek justice in a different way. As previously mentioned, in the fall of 1994, the Tories launched a civil lawsuit against Rodney Bonney and their home insurance company, Louisiana Farm Bureau Mutual Insurance Company, seeking financial compensation for the death of their son. The four-day trial took place in September, with a judge ultimately ruling in favor of the Tories, finding Rodney to be liable in the amount of about $650,000. The court essentially argued that, contrary to the ruling of his criminal trial, Rodney's fear had not in fact been, quote, reasonable, and that there was therefore no need to resort to the use of a dangerous weapon to repel an attack, As Rodney could have avoided harm by simply retreating into his home or calling for help. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly exactly. right. Or you you shoot the gun in the air or something, you know, whatever it may be. Like the fact that that was the first thing that crossed his mind was to lift his arm and shoot the gun at the one person that was different, you know, at the scene is just crazy to me. I'm
2: so glad that the judge could just ignore this bullshit, like this whole bullshit defense argument. I imagine, said, the Pierce family probably wasn't happy with this ruling, right?
0: So, Sadie, I think you're exactly right. Rodney and Bonnie and the family were super unhappy with the results. They actually tried to go through the appeals process, but ultimately the appeals court upheld the original ruling, officially denying their appeal in 1996.
2: I'm glad that happened, said.
0: Yeah. Like, Sadia, you know, this was a, a, a crazy case. And, you know, I'm glad that there was some accountability through the civil trial. It's very sad that through the actual criminal proceedings that Rodney was not held accountable. But, you know, I think, yeah, like I said, through the civil trial, I think it was it was really important that um, the family was awarded um, uh, that money, all of which they gave to gun control efforts, which was really cool, Mm. too. Mm. So, Sadia, now that you know the facts of the case, the big question Should Rodney Piers, his actions be considered a hate crime?
2: I said this is a complicated case because there is no explicit evidence suggesting whether this can be considered a hate crime or not, right? The question then is, if there was somebody else, a white person, a white teenager, approaching the driveway or approaching the house, would Rodney have acted in the same manner? And honestly, I think he may have
0: wow that's well so he did not shoot at Webb you know when he Webb was in the driveway as well why why wouldn't he have shot at Webb
2: That's a good point I said but I'm also thinking Yoshi was approaching the house again right so he was waving his arms he was trying to communicate with Rodney, which Rodney obviously mistook for some kind of a threat while Webb stayed where he was. And I don't have all the information as to what was really happening there in that moment. But that's my understanding.
0: Yeah, I know. I I totally hear what you're saying. And, you know, I feel like this is the kind of stuff that your brain makes these split-second decisions. And You know, this part of the country at that time was not really diverse. It was, I'm looking at the stats right now, 63% white, only 1.4% Asian. And so, you know, when he's outside with this gun in his hand and he sees two people, and then all of a sudden he sees someone that's Asian,
2: Mm.
0: we don't know what's going on in his head. But I can imagine like these, you know, oh, my God, someone that's different is here, right? And then immediately his reaction is to pull the trigger like it... It's mind-blowing to me, again, like how quickly these things can escalate. And, and yeah, I'm of the uh, opinion that this is probably can't be categorized as a hate crime, but this definitely, for me, felt like there was some prejudice, you know, uh, happening, you know, within him to have pulled the trigger against the one person who was different, you know, on the scene.
2: said, I, I hear you because, so what you're saying is that although not explicitly stated it is quite possible that racial prejudice may have played a large role in how Rodney and Bonnie viewed Yoshi as dangerous and the fear that ensued that caused him to pull the trigger, right?
0: as always, you say things so much more eloquently than I do. (laughs) And I think that's exactly right.
2: Yeah, I said, I think you're right. This may not be as explicit, but there is some element of racial prejudice and bias that probably exists. And because of that, it could be classified as a hate crime, but not in the conventional way or classical way.
0: Can I also just, and this is not part of the hate crime discussion, but just like the fact that they didn't call the police even after the shooting happened, like, like the neighbor, you know, had to call the police yeah. and like that they didn't go out and help, you know, just like all these things. I just I, it's unfathomable to me, you know, like I guess I would say they're just they didn't seem like good people either. And you're right. That's coloring. That's coloring my decision a little bit.
2: You're, you're absolutely right. As if death of a 16 year old kid or at least a 16 year old kid injured and almost dying didn't matter to them.
0: Yeah. You know, sadly, both Richard and Holly Haymaker seem to believe that Rachel Prejudice contributed to the way in which the situation unfolded. And we actually have a couple clips uh, from them from the Justice Files. Um, Here they are. I have often wished that we'd had a French
1: boy or a Norwegian boy because I'm not so sure that that boy would have been shot. Yeah, she said, I knew he was darker than me. Now, think of what happened. The moment um, Bonnie saw Webb, she thought nothing was unusual. She then saw Yoshi, and within a half a second, the door was slammed and get your gun was said.
2: So, said I'm curious, where are the Huttori's, the haymakers, and the peers today?
0: Yeah, so Rodney continues to be free, having moved on with his life after being acquitted of the criminal charges. Richard and Holly Haymaker still live in Baton Rouge and are now retired. Holly is in her late 70s and Richard is in his early 80s. They are less involved in campaigning for gun reform um, as they used to be, um, but continue to support the cause. And after the shooting, Webb turned to music to cope with his trauma he eventually got a master's degree in social work from Columbia University and became a child psychotherapist. However, Sadia Webb uh, remained plagued by the trauma of Yoshi's loss uh, and was really haunted by a survivor's guilt and tragically just, you know, a year ago in March um, at the age of 46, he took his own life.
2: Oh wow, I said that is so heartbreaking. Such a horrible tragedy to experience at such a young age. It's no wonder that it stuck with him all those years and just so unfortunate that he was never able to fully recover.
0: Yeah, I mean, these things haunt, you know, not just the people, obviously, that are the main victims, but also, yeah, the people that uh, family members, friends, witnesses, all that kind of stuff.
2: And we always say this, right? Such violent crimes have long lasting impact on individuals, on communities, on people's mental health. But I said I hope that the Hutoris are doing a little better today.
0: Yeah, thankfully the Hutoris seem to be doing well over the years. They've dedicated much of their time to continuing the fight for gun control or gun reform in Yoshi's name. In twenty eighteen they spoke to students who survived the Parkland shooting and took part in the March uh, for Our Lives rally in Nagoya in March of 2018 to show their support. Hmm. And, you know, according to the Washington Post, they are now in their mid-70s and announced that they would be stepping down from running the Yoshi Coalition, and they've passed that on to the younger generations to, to fight.
2: Oh, that's good. It's certainly a cause worth fighting for us, Asad and we have some statistics, some information about how the plague of gun violence is still impacting communities in the United States. Gun violence remains a massive problem within the US, as all of us know, claiming an average of 43,000 lives each year. An average of 116 lives per day, Asad, according to statistics released by the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. America has... Guess what, I said? 393 million guns.
0: That's crazy. How many do you have, Sadia?
2: Uh, I don't have a gun. I said, I am so scared of guns. I am very scared and of guns. And by the as well. way, I said, the interesting fact, not interesting, sad fact is we have more guns than we do people.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
2: And despite the efforts made by the Hutories, the Haymakers, and thousands of other Japanese and American individuals, Ultimately, little has been done to reform gun control within the United States, leaving the country vulnerable to shootings such as the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting, the 2018 Parkland school shooting, the 2023 Nashville school shooting, and unfortunately so many others.
0: We could be here all day.
2: We could be here not just all day, a few days, weeks. More than 30 years later, Asad, we are still seeing incidents almost identical to that of Yoshihiro's shooting. And I'll share an incident with you, Asad. In April of 2023, 16-year-old Ralph Yarl was shot twice in Kansas City, Missouri after ringing the doorbell of the wrong house while attempting to pick up his siblings. Thankfully, Jarl survived despite being hit in the head with one of the bullets. Wow. And as just days later, 20-year-old Kaelin Gillis was shot in upstate New York after pulling into the wrong driveway while looking for a friend's house. Gillis did not survive, unfortunately. So these incidents keep happening. Keep happening.
0: Yeah, be careful out there when you're, if you're. Going to a place you don't know. Don't
2: pull into anybody's driveway other than yours. (laughs) Honestly, I am so freaked out. It just makes me so anxious every time I'm close to somebody else's driveway and I'm trying to maneuver the car. I get scared, I said, because I don't know what may happen.
0: Totally. No, I totally get it. It's so tragic.
2: And as, as we just discussed, it's clear that this remains a major issue in the US. The ongoing presence and reliance on guns combined with pervading culture of distrust and sort of every man for himself truly hyper individualistic society attitude has created a national crisis. Yeah, I agree. Asad, what do you think? What can listeners do to help?
0: Yeah, you know, sadly, we always try to share some resources of places that you can support or donate. And I think there's a bunch of ways, you know, that you can support the cause of gun control in honor of Yoshi and the thousands of Americans that have suffered from gun violence every year. We'll list a bunch of places in our show notes. But, you know, some of the bigger ones that are out there that, um, I've supported in the past are, you know, the Every Town for Gun Safety, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence, and the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. I mean, obviously, there's tragically, you know, dozens and dozens of these organizations as well because the issue is so prevalent. So, but, you know, do what you can to support, you know, uh, gun control measures
2: absolutely and write to us what did you think about this particular episode how has gun violence impacted you in your lives what are your thoughts we would love to hear from all of you as always thank you so much for listening to invisible heat if you want to learn more check out links in the show notes about the case Please email us your thoughts on this or any other story that you think we should cover. And by the way, we are going to share a story that was recommended to us by one of our listeners in next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. Yes, you can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com with your suggestions about other stories or cases you want us to cover. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast.
0: Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production between Immigrantly and Rafaelian Media. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Emmanuel Monaghan, and Purma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. And as always, we'll be back next week for another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then... I'm butt,
2: And I'm Zanabia
1: so Khan. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
0: Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts